We're good? All right, we're good. Oh, you now you make it sound like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. All right, Joshua 9. We're kind of on a, a roller coaster here in the book of Joshua. If you've been with us the last few weeks, chapter 6, things went good. Chapter 7, things went bad. Chapter 8, things went good. Chapter 9, things go bad. Now, it's really kind of disappointing because I really like Joshua. I really think Joshua's a good leader. I think Joshua's really used by the Lord. But Joshua kind of keeps falling into the same traps here again and again, and maybe that's what makes Joshua so relatable to us. Is I have a good week, seems like followed by a bad week, followed by a good week, followed by a bad week. And here Joshua is doing the same thing. Here in chapter 9, there's this group of people called the Gibeonites. And what happens here in chapter 9 is the Gibeonites come to Joshua and they try to make a deal with him. So that way they won't be conquered. And it's a trap, and Joshua falls for it. Verse 1. came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland sea, and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, they heard about it. They gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So there's a group of kings that said, okay, we see what's going on here, so we're going to get all together and we're going to fight this. They've already taken out Jericho. They've already taken out Ai. We know why they're here. They're here to destroy us, so we're going to group together to fight them. Now, real quick, I have to throw this out there. If you'd like a little more study, this reminds me so much of the Battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. It really does. You have this, this God event going forward here that's not going to be stopped, but yet the nations of the world, verse 2, gather together thinking they can stop the hand of God. And, you know, they failed thousands of years ago in Joshua 9, and they're going to fail in Revelation 19 also. Mankind always thinks we're going to win. We think we can outsmart the Lord. We think that we're the ones that are going to make it. And really God says, no, I'm God. And really what it comes down to with this, to fight the Lord is a really dumb thing. In the, in the book of Job, uh, Job is almost fighting God. If you really read it out, and one of his friends actually comes to Job and says, why do you fight the Lord? And really, why do we fight him sometimes? How often do we do this as Christians? We know what he wants us to do, and we don't do it. We know his will, and we don't do it. We're really fighting the will of the Lord. I don't know how many times people have called me on the phone or come into my office and said, well, I know what God wants me to do. Now, what, what could you possibly say after that event that's going to make any difference? If you know what God wants you to do, anything past that point, you're really fighting God, and you're going to lose. Well, these nations think they can gather together in verse 2, and they're going to fight. They're going to fight Israel. Now, they're, they're going to lose. Well, the Gibeonites... Give a little bit of credit here. They come up with a different idea. Verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. They went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks from their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you will dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said, Who are you and where did you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Ah, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtoreth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And they go make their case, verse 12, look at our bread, verse 13, look at our wineskins. 
Now, what's the big deal with this? If you're taking notes, just write down these verses. Exodus 23.32 and Deuteronomy 7.2. Exodus 23.32, Deuteronomy 7.2. God says, do not make a covenant with any of the nations in the land of Canaan or promised land. He goes, they are wicked. They've been given an opportunity. They need to be destroyed. God made that abundantly clear to them. Now, he gave one little clause. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, he says, if you get natives, nations, from a faraway country that's not part of Canaan, he goes, make, try to make peace with them first. But the nations of Canaan, do not make peace with them, do not make a covenant with them, destroy them. He says, if they're from a faraway nation, make peace with them. So that's why these people came dressed up looking like a faraway nation. Now, I don't know for sure if they knew those rules. I don't know what was going on, if they were taking a chance. I don't know. But so Israel see these people coming from a faraway land, and they're thinking, okay, we can make a covenant with these people. Because the rules say if they're from Canaan, we destroy them. If they're not from Canaan, we, we can make peace with them and kind of go from there. Now, real quick about this. Turn, if you will, to the book of James, chapter 4. We need to make a point about this. The reason why God said don't make peace with anybody from the promised land is because it's basically going to come back to bite you. You know, I, I shared this story with you before. <coughs> Excuse me. There was an individual out here that we were ministering to that had a problem with uh, drinking. He was uh, battling that. He was getting himself into some trouble, and so we got involved in trying to help him. And uh, him and I went one place one time, and I said, let's, let's just get everything on the open here. What's going on? So he told me he was, he was struggling with the alcohol. He was struggling with the drinking. And I said, okay, do you want to stop? He goes, yeah, I want to stop. I want to be done with this. So we got, and I said, let's pray about this. So we went home, and um, I said, so you want to be done? He goes, yeah, I want to be done. And, he, and I said, so do you got any in the house? And he goes, yeah, I got some in the house. He goes, I'm going to go in right away, and I'm going to go in and, and take it and get rid of it right now. And I said, okay. I said, do you mean that? He goes, yeah. I said, good, let, let's go in together and grab it together, and let's get rid of it together. Because here's the thing. So often we make little compromises and covenants, and we make little friends. Look at James 4 here, verse 4. Book of James, very straightforward. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is why God said no covenants with the people of Canaan. Because if you make friendships with them, you're really saying I'm making a friend with the enemy of God. God says I know better than you. These people in the land of Canaan will hurt you and destroy you. Unless you get out there and destroy them, they will hurt you and destroy you. And I've told you I'd make this point numerous times through the book of Joshua. Don't sit here and say, well, how could a God of love say that they need to be killed? We've already studied this out. God gives these nations opportunity to make peace. They knew about the Lord. They knew about God. Just like Rahab the prostitute said, you know what? I'm going to make peace with God rather than be destroyed. Any one of these nations could have tried to make peace with God. They chose not to. So since therefore they chose not to make peace with God, they were an enemy of God and they needed to be destroyed. By trying to make a covenant with the nation in Canaan, what you're doing is James 4.4. 4, you're making a friendship with the world. When Jesus came on this earth, and when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he didn't say, let's find a compromise. There is no compromise, he said. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We live in a world full of compromises. Election was just last night. Obviously, we followed the results, and what you're hearing on the news today now is these two parties need to find a way to compromise to work things out. See, in the, in the world of uh, Christianity, 
there's not a compromise. How do I compromise on Jesus being the way, the truth, and life? How do we compromise on this being God's holy word? How do we compromise on things we can't? How do we compromise on the world? But yet we do that as Christians, don't we? We cling on to those things that we know are going to cause problems, and so we don't get rid of it all the way. We hold on to little things, and those little things we hold on to will come back to bite us. It will. If they make peace and covenants with people in the land of Canaan, that means the enemy is still there, and that's going to come back to bite them. That's why they need to utterly destroy them, so that way they can move into the promised land free and clear. You want all sin out of your life. You don't want to keep a little bit of sin left in you. If you keep a little bit of sin left in you, it's going to come back to get you. So no compromise, no covenants, no peace with the people of Canaan. These people knew that, and they fooled Joshua, and they fooled the land of Israel. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about this before we move on? Yeah, John. Yeah, you bring up a good point there. God has already warned us on a lot of things. That one about beginning married unequally. If you look in the Bible, there's usually enough warnings there to tell you, just follow the rules. So if you follow the rules, everything's going to be okay. It's really quite simple. But the problem is there's this deceitfulness that happens. And see, and these Gibeonites, a behind-the-back compliment, they were kind of smart cookies to figure out how to do this. They knew they couldn't beat them militarily, so they were deceitful. Here's the next thing. I look at verses 9 through 13 here of their deceit, I think that's a picture of Satan and the way he works. I really do that. Deceit's all over the place. It is. It's all over the place. You know, you guys know I'm a, I'm a student of history. I love history. We're all familiar with D-Day. We're all familiar with that. But there was actually another operation going on while they were planning for D-Day, and it was called Operation Fortitude, if anybody's familiar with this. What they did in Operation Fortitude, they brought Patton, General, out of Italy, and they moved him over to Europe, actually over to England, and they put him there because the Germans knew that if any general was going to lead the attack on D-Day, it would be who? Patton. But they used Patton as what? A disguise. They didn't use him. And what they actually did to the Allies is they built all these fake boats. They had inflatable tanks. They had all this stuff, and they set all this stuff up over in England. So every time the reconnaissance planes of the Germany flew over, they saw all these things, and they said, that's the army massing. That's where Patton is. So as long as we just see what they're doing, we'll be okay. And it was all ships made out of wood and all tanks made out of inflatable rubber. It was an amazing thing. It was called Operation Fortitude. It was this big disguise to fool Germany, which it did. You hear what the Gibeonites, they're doing their own Operation Fortitude. They're coming in and they're fooling everything. Here's some verses that I want to share with you. And if you, if you want to take notes, you can, or if you want to follow along with these, you can too, because I think these are some pretty good scriptures here. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I think this is the picture of Satan as we go through this. As I was reading through this, I kept thinking, this is a picture of what the enemy does. 2 Corinthians. Let's go 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to start out with. Quick little verses here, but I think these verses are important enough, and I encourage you to mark these, because these are ones that are going to pop up a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Do you realize how ignorant we are as Christians? 
I was reading a commentary by J. Vernon McGee over this um, today. He comes right out and says, and J. Vernon McGee, if you don't know him real well, he just says exactly what he's thinking. He just comes out and says, Christians are stupid. That's what he says. Because we fall into the same traps of Satan again and again and again. I've been walking with the Lord for 17 years. And over those 17 years, I keep getting tripped up by the same things again and again and again. God is writing here saying, do not be ignorant of the devices of Satan. What does Satan do? He twists and then he lies. That's what he's done from the beginning. Go back to Genesis 3. What's the first thing he says to Eve? Did God really say, don't eat of this? He just twists it a little bit. Well, Eve starts thinking. She starts answering some questions. And next thing you know, he comes right on Genesis 3 and just flat out lies. He says, you're, you're not going to die if you eat that. Satan does the same thing today. He takes an element of truth and he twists it. And then as you twist it, you get into that twisting. And next thing you know, you're into the full lie of it. Next verse you need to write down here, we're not going to flip there, is John 8, 44. John 8, 44, we know this one. Jesus says, Satan is the father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. It's amazing how when you look at the world today, and you ask somebody about the umbrella of Christianity, what they put on that umbrella of Christianity. Jehovah Witnesses get put under that umbrella. Uh, Mormons get put under that umbrella of Christianity. And if you study out the doctrine of Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they are not Christians. They're not followers of Christ. Because that theology of theirs has been twisted. It's been twisted. And what Satan does, he gets in there and he twists things. That's what he does. It always makes me nervous when I see somebody, and I just had this happen recently, um, somebody really getting on fire for the Lord, really starting to go deeper in their walk with the Lord. And, and then they call me up and they said, hey, I said, hey, I, I just saw this teacher on TV. And it's like, what do you think of? And it's like, don't ask me. Just don't ask me. What do you think of so-and-so? And it's like, oh, man. How do you explain that this person that they're listening to may be 90, 95% right? But that 5-10% that is twisted is going to take them down a path of destruction. You try to explain that. But it looks so good, it sounds so good. And as Christians, we think, well, as long as the person has a pulpit and a Bible, obviously they must be saying the truth. We forget as Christians that we're supposed to check everything out. Why? Because Satan uses things. We're not supposed to be ignorant of his devices. He twists and he lies. Genesis 3, we know that. What's the next thing that Satan does? Stay here in 2 Corinthians and jump ahead to uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. He twists things and he looks good. He really makes himself look good. And he makes those people following him look good too. And there's been a lot of times where people under the umbrella of Christianity have really been an instrument of the enemy. They look right and they look good. And you know how hard it is to tell? It's really hard to tell. So hard to tell that Judas, one of the twelve, was an instrument of Satan, and no one else caught it. Isn't that just mind-blowing? No one else caught it. They actually thought so highly of Judas, they made Judas the treasurer. Isn't that a fascinating thing? This guy walked with Jesus for three years, and the other eleven had no idea... No idea that this person was going to be used by Satan at the end, and, and they had no idea with it. 
That's how good he is at disguising things. And I look back here over the 10 years I've been a pastor out here, and I can think of numerous examples of where the enemy has, has tried to infiltrate through things. And this person comes in, they look good, they sound good. And they're like, wow, but something's just not right, and you can't put your finger on it. But, but they look good, they sound good, and next thing you know, how quickly you can get caught up into that and almost get pulled down by it. See, as believers, we have to keep studying out the truth. When you study out the truth, you'll know what's false. See, so often we flip that around. I run into Christians like, well, you know what? I want to study out the Quran a little bit. I want to study out some of the Hindu, Far Eastern religion so I can see the other stuff there. And really they have it backwards. If you really want to know the truth, you study the truth. And as you know the truth of Jesus Christ, when something false comes up, you automatically can tell it because it doesn't line up with the truth. You study what is real. You study what is true. So that way when something false comes up, you're not distracted by it. And I always use this example. This pops up every few years, the idea of Jesus having a wife and being married, right? You know, there's movies made in Hollywood about it. There's books made about it. And every now and then someone comes up and says, well, you know, I, you know, I, I read this book or this person was talking about Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And, and, and you know, what, what do you think about that? Well, if you know the truth of the scriptures, you know that it didn't happen. Well, there's nothing in the Bible. Yeah, Jesus is married. Did you know that? Who's Jesus married to? You and me. We're the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible says. So if you want to know who Jesus' wife is, go look in the mirror. You're his wife. You're the bride of Christ. And every year around Christmas, you know what you're going to find? Thank goodness for the History Channel. They're going to tell us all about Jesus here in about a month. Aren't you glad for that? And then coming around in Easter, thank goodness for History Channel again. They're going to give us all these stories on Jesus, and we're going to know exactly who Jesus was because the History Channel will tell us. And really what it is, it's truth twisted into lies. It's the world's perspective. If you want to know the birth story of Christ, go read Matthew and Luke. If you want to know how it ends, go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and you'll have it. You'll have the beginning and the end. But yet we get caught up in this twisting of things. This is what Satan does. He twists things. He, he looks like an angel of light. And you know what? He knows our weakness. What was the weakness? Why did they fall when they went to go battle Ai a couple of chapters ago? We said they never once checked with the Lord to see what he had to say about Ai. Well, look here in Joshua 9, look at verse 14. <coughs> then the men of Israel took some of the provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. They ran into the same trap. See, the same things that tripped me up as a believer 17 years ago that still trip me up now, why? Because I'm still weak in that area. The enemy knows that. The enemy knew the way to get to Israel is what? I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. It seems like after a spiritual success, they forget to ask the Lord the next time. Jericho went good. AI went bad. Okay, AI went good. Now things go bad. Verse 14, they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Foolish decisions usually follow a lack of prayer. Look back on your life. Foolish decisions follow a lack of prayer. I shouldn't have said that. I bet you probably didn't pray about what you should say. I should have never taken that job. I should have never done this. I should have never done that. Because you probably didn't seek the Lord on it. The best thing we could do as Christians is do the opposite of verse 14. Is ask counsel of the Lord. This is what got them in trouble. And so, since they didn't know what happened, what's the next result? Verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them. Made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Cherapeth and Baroth and Kirish Jerem. 
But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. I'm telling you right now, in a leadership position out here at this church, if I want to hear people complain, I just need to make decisions not based in prayer. If I just make decisions based on what I think, I'm going to get complaints because it's not going to be in the will of God. The best thing that could be done in any type of leadership position, be it a church, in the world, whatever, is go to verse 14 and ask counsel of the Lord. Because if you do not seek the Lord's counsel, the result of this is going to be verse 18, the congregation will complain. And you know what? They had a right to complain. So often we pick on Israel for complaining. This is one, they were rightfully so. They were let down by their leadership immensely. They were let down by this. If they just would have simply asked the Lord, what should we do? Don't you think God would have revealed to the, the falsehood of this? If they just would have asked the Lord, they didn't. Since they did not ask counsel of the Lord, verse 14, they made a covenant, and verse 15, they shouldn't have. Verse 18, now there's problems. Verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, therefore we may not touch them. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Real quick in verse 20, if you want a little more study on this, I believe it's 2 Samuel uh, 21. Years later, Saul tries to go in and take out the Gibeonites. And he tried to take them out. And what happened was years later, David and his kingdom, they're being, for lack of a better word, cursed by the Lord. And David goes to the Lord and says, why are we being cursed here? What's going on? And the Lord comes back and tells David it's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. So this is the amazing thing about this. In today's society, wouldn't we look at this and say, you know what, they lied. So let's just take them out. They're going to be in cancer. They're going to be a problem. Let's just take them out. Here leadership is saying, we promised to them we would not touch them. Even though it's going to be a problem, we're going to stick by our word. We're not going to lie because they lied. Boy, in the world today, don't we do that? Well, you did this to me, so I'm doing this back to you. God doesn't really work that way. And years later, when Saul tries to go back on the promise here, and he tries to take out the Gibeonites, God says, I'm going to defend these people. And I'm going to defend them because of the promise that was made. Verse 20, the oath which we swore to them. Verse 20, when the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us? Saying, we are very far from you and, and when you dwell near us. Now therefore you are cursed. None of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told, the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we are very much afraid for our lives because of you, and we have done this thing. And now here we are, in your hands. Do with us it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, so did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, I, I find this really interesting. Verse 24, they, they know what God was doing. So, so why not just turn to God? Well, isn't this so strange with the world? I was just talking to someone about this earlier today, about how there's, there's people that, you know, so often it's, it's the trials and tribulations that bring them closer to the Lord, which I'm thankful for. But yet, maybe if that walk was with where it was supposed to be with the Lord, they wouldn't have to have those trials and tribulations to bring them closer to the Lord. You know, these people right here, they were deceitful, and because of that deceit, they became basically slaves for the rest of their lives, I guess versus being killed. 
But yet if they knew the truth of God, verse 24, they knew who the Lord was, they knew what God was doing, why not hit their knees and say, we're following the wrong God? See, doesn't that happen in the world today? I, I got people I know that would never step foot in church, that really don't want a relationship with the Lord, but yet they call me up and say, would you please pray for this? That makes no sense to me. But you know what? I pray for them. Because it's a great way to plant seeds. And you guys all work with people that really are not God-fearing people in any way. But when the going gets tough, they know where you stand, they know where you are, and they probably say, hey, can, can you pray for this? Or if you say, hey, can I pray for you? They don't say no. I, I was reading an article online of a, a guy that was a devout atheist. Got cancer. Still claims to be an atheist. But he said he'll take all the prayers he can. Now that makes no sense to me. But obviously God's working on his heart. That's what I do know. These guys right here in verse 24, why not just turn from their false gods and say we want to follow the God of Israel, just like Rahab the prostitute did. They could have been in the chronicles of heaven. They could have. They chose to be deceitful. I think these people are a picture of Satan. They're a picture of Satan that they look good, they sound good, but there's a lie behind it. I tell you this, guys, just be careful with whatever teaching you hear, and that means whatever teaching you hear out here, check it out with Scripture, make sure it lines up with the Word of God, and know that Satan likes to twist, and those twists turn into lies. Don't be brought down by false teaching. It's out there. It wants to knock you down. And don't let it get to you. In fact, Paul, when he left the city of Ephesus, his last warning to the city of Ephesus is what? Wolves will come. And those wolves will come in false teaching to pull you down. First Peter is all about false teaching. Book of Jude, false teaching. Just decades after Jesus died on the cross, false teaching was already getting into the church. That's one of the, Satan's greatest weapons, as he twists the word of God. Make sure it lines up the word of God. And also, don't forget verse 14. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. Wow. Spend your time with the Lord. Ask the Lord. Seek the Lord. Guidance and wisdom. We've been hitting that on Sunday with Proverbs. Best advice to say is run those decisions through the filter of God and see what he has to say. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up? Marcus. Very valid point. It's kind of like the um, tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. We um, do the one bad thing, and then we try to make up for that one little lie with another little lie and another little lie. And you're right. You bring up a good point, Marcus. What would have happened if they just would have stopped and said, okay, Lord, we're in the bottom of the pit here. We really screwed this one up. What do you want us to do? That yeah, been a good point to do. And don't we do the same thing? We get in a little bit bottom of a pit, and instead of asking the Lord, we just keep trying to dig ourselves out. That's what we try to do. Yeah. Uh, anybody else got anything Heather, want to say here before we close up? Yeah, Heather.
That's a pretty neat thing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. You, you mentioned something there about the word. You know, the Bible calls the Bible uh, a sword. And as a Christian, this is the weapon God gave us. And so often, we don't use it that much. And, you know, if you really think about it, a sword can be defensive, yes. But God says your defensive weapon is the shield of faith. The sword is supposed to be attacking. And we need to use God's word in an attacking way. And I don't mean that in the way it sounds, but in the attacking way of truth. The word of God is what cuts. And that's what we need to use when it comes to battling this false stuff. Because here's the thing about false teachings, false religions, false prophets. It doesn't stand up under the eyes of the Bible. It just doesn't. When you really study it out, it does not stand up. And we need to know our Bible. And it goes back to that point we said earlier. If you want to be able to combat the false, make sure you know the truth. As you know the truth, you'll be able to dictate the false. You'll be able to see it right out of there. So, anybody else got anything to say before we close up? Yeah, Megan. Yeah, I mean, it's just like anything, and I and I encourage you to do this, and you bring up a good point there, Megan, about getting the full context of God's Word. Obviously, we threw out references tonight, John 8, 44, 2 Corinthians, you know, whatever, they're 11, 14. But I encourage you, go home, read the verses before it, read the verses after it. Get the full context of it. And, you know, I encourage that with anything. Get the full context of what's going on here, and you'll be able to know it better then. Last thing I'm going to say is, I just want to share this real quick with verses 9 through 13, where they say, look at the bread, look at the wineskins, look at everything. It reminds me sometimes if I hear people making decisions. They're like, well, we sat down, and you know, they offered me, fill in this blank, they offered me this job, they, they made this offer on the house, and we really looked at it. It's better pay, it's less miles, it's a better house. It's, and we make this little pro-con list. And then we stop and we think, what, did we ever ask the Lord what he wants? Because really what we're looking at is moldy bread and old wineskins. God, what, what do you want us to do? Let him make the decision. As he makes the decision, oh boy, you'll walk in peace. You really will. All right, let's close up with prayer then. Um, Lord, as we just come to you tonight, uh, good to be here. Lord, I just pray that we would truly be a people that ask counsel of the Lord. Um, help us to do that. And Lord, also just uh, help us not to be ignorant of the way the enemy works, Lord. We know the falseness out there. We know the way he twists, Lord. Help us to stick to your word, and Lord, help us to stick to the truth in all ways and all things. We love you and we thank you, Lord. We lift this up in your name. Amen.